Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's go back and try to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the seven churches before we start. You're dealing with historical churches that happened in John's day, 95 AD, when he wrote the book of Revelation. But then you're also dealing from what's called a historical prophetic significance and the fact that the churches are laid out in chronological order in seven of them, seven being the number of completion or perfection, to show what the church age will look like. And there are going to be dominant stages in the church age. Well, when you're at number seven, Laodicea, you're looking at what the church will look like right before the rapture. And again, like I said, it's not a pretty picture. There's the Philadelphia church that's still part of the remnant that will be raptured out and all these other elements. But Laodicea will be the dominant force. And uh, I think we're already there. There's no doubt about it. We are definitely living in those times. Let's do some refreshing of our minds real quickly before we move on so we understand what's happening here. You pick up with verse 14 with me, and let's reiterate that again of Laodicea. And this is some backtracking, so I won't take a lot of time, but it says this, And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things say the amen, which means that Jesus has the final say on what they're doing, the faithful and true witness, and what he is saying is true. He's not going to hold anything back. He's going to tell them what he thinks about them. And he goes, the beginning of the creation of God, I'm going to come to that later in the passage, but the problem with Laodicea is they're not seeing Jesus as the creator because they're starting to worship the creation rather than the creator. So he mentions that. I'll unpack that in just a bit. Verse 15, I know your works. So he knows what they're doing, what Laodicea is about, that you are neither cold nor hot. And we talked about that. And just to refresh our minds, if you weren't with us last week, I showed you some of the, the Lycus River Valley. Let me show you that on the screen again. Laodicea was there between Heropolis and Colossae. Colossae had the cold, mountain-capped, streamed water that came into Laodicea. And then Heropolis had the hot springs there that were very therapeutic for people to go. And they would sit in the water, and it was very therapeutic on their aching joints and whatnot. And there's some pictures of Heropolis and the hot springs that they had. And people from all over Turkey and all over the Mediterranean came there. Let's go to the next one. Uh, and then there's the snow-capped mountains of Colossi. And that snow melted, obviously, like it does in our Sierras, created this fresh running water. And then this is Laodicea today. And they piped the fresh water there through these pipes. But they also had, unfortunately, what happened is the two rivers from Heropolis and Colossi came and met and formed another river. And then you had the mixture of the hot mineral water with the cold, frigid water coming together. And it created the Laodicean water and the water problem they had, which was it was lukewarm and it was mineral laden. So, in effect, what Jesus was saying to them, I would wish you were either hot, therapeutic, uh, warming of muscles as their waters did, or even cold where you could drink and be refreshed by it. So, both the ideas, hot and cold, are usefulness, but you are neither. You are lukewarm. You are like the water that comes in your city, which is useless. So what Jesus is telling them is that this lukewarm condition is not a denial of their salvation. 
It is a state of a Christian who is useless to the king, useless to their master, useless because they are a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. They are the servant in the Matthew 25 parable that buried his talent. He was useless. He does nothing with his salvation. He is saved, but he is useless. Useless, as they say, is parsley on a platter of fish. And there's a lot of Christians in America just like that. Well, what do you mean by useless? It means ineffective. Doesn't produce any fruit. Jesus said, if you abide in me, if you obey me as a servant, you will produce much fruit. They don't produce fruit. They sit on their blessed assurance day after day, week after week, Bible study after Bible study. They attend, and they think they're going to get rewarded for doing their duty. Jesus, in another passage, told the disciples, don't think you're going to get rewarded for your duty. I'm paraphrasing. He says, when you've done your duty, just say, we are servants simply doing what we're told to do. The only way you're rewarded is if you go the second mile. If you go towards self-sacrificing of your time, talent, and treasure, that's when you're rewarded. You don't get rewarded for doing your duty. But the Laodiceans, they have the mindset that they're going to be rewarded just for simply showing up. Just showing up on Sunday morning, just showing up to a Bible study, they think they're going to get the reward, but they're not a doer of the word, nor in their personal life do they obey. Oh, yeah, they have some forms of morality, but in the big scheme of things, they strain at gnats and they swallow camels. They're the ones that can't get their marriage figured out. They're the ones that keep having relational problems. They're the ones that keep having stumbling blocks of sin in their life, and they can't have victory over it. Why? Because they don't have the motivation to get over it. So they just live with it. And they still think they're being blessed. Because they live in America, because they live in this environment, and their environment is fairly easy, fairly comfortable, they think they're having the blessing of God. And that's what the problem is here. But again, as Jesus said in another parable, what good is it when the salt loses its saltiness? When it's ineffective, doesn't do anything for the kingdom, doesn't evangelize, doesn't do anything, it is useless just to be thrown on the ground and trampled by men. That's the idea here. Now, as I mentioned last week, and again in review, this uselessness of these Christians cannot face the biggest threat to the church that's going on simultaneously. And right now, what you know and I know is the biggest threat to the church is apostasy, We are living in the age of apostasy that Paul predicted, that Jesus predicted, all the Scripture predicted about this. And so the biggest problem, the big elephant in the room, cannot be effectively managed because the church is checked out. They are in a state of uselessness. This is why apostasy is running rapid. There's no one to combat it anymore. It's just going on, and there's no one doing anything. They're just sitting on their hands, letting all of this happen, right in front of their very face, right in front of their, in their church, right in front of their home, because they're useless. So the idea then, as we go back to the Scriptures, let me show you something. Since we're in this state of Laodicea, which is uselessness, he goes, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, he's using what they had in the water. When someone tried to drink Laodicean water, the immediate 
response of the body would be to vomit it out because the body couldn't take it. All the mineral content, it was lukewarm. Immediately, the body would spit it out and vomit it. So he's using what's right in front of them as an analogy for what he's about to do to them. Well, this idea of vomit you out of my mouth means I reject what you're doing. I don't reject you, but I reject what you're practicing. Jesus will always love us, but he'll hate our practices if they're unbiblical. He says, I hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. And so the idea is that when we start practicing this state of operations, of Laodicean mindset, you're asking Jesus to discipline you or punish you. And that's what he's threatening Laodicea with. Now, I firmly believe that we're part of that Philadelphia category. But here's the deal, which you have to understand. When I'm talking about Laodicea, we're talking about a global effect on a Christian, that it's globally part of their life, right? But even part of the Philadelphia church, we can all look at this text and say, wait, there's degrees in me that have Laodicean in them. There's pockets of Laodicea in my walk with the Lord that, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm good, real good here, but over here, man, I'm lagging behind. I'm kind of indifferent towards it. I'm really not motivated to change in this category of my life. You have what's called a pocket of Laodicea, and we all have them. We all are supposed to get those worked out. So to whatever degree or whatever pocket, there's application here for us. But the primary reference is a Christian who globally is like this, globally. So we have to understand what he's saying, how that applies to us. Well, this idea of vomiting out of my mouth is the idea, I'm going to discipline you for this. And the Lord's discipline or punishment for a believer can come one of three different ways. And I want to show you this. The first way is this, a loss of temporal spiritual blessings, a loss of temporal or spiritual blessings. We'll explain this, Brandon. Well, We talk about having the abundant life and having that freedom in Christ. The Laodicean person doesn't experience this. They don't even know what I'm talking about. They think they have the abundant life, but they don't. They're still enslaved to their sin. They still can't get out of it because they're stuck. They're stuck, and they don't know why. So this freedom that Christ promises, they don't experience. There's a loss of fellowship with God and others, and they do not even know it. They don't even know they're out of fellowship with God. They think they're in fellowship with God, but everyone else, part of the remnant church, can see it, that they're not in fellowship with God. They're grumped up with God. They're messed up, but they think they are. They think they're tied with Jesus. They'll lose their marriage. They'll lose businesses. They'll lose relationships in the church. The nine spiritual blessings that we get from the Holy Spirit, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, is not even existent in this person because they will not yield to the Holy Spirit. And they lose, eventually, whatever has become the idol in their life. That's Laodicea. So you can have temporal judgment that Jesus will give you. So it's removal of spiritual blessings. And sometimes removal of an idol in their lives. That's number one. But number two, he can go even further with sickness and physical death. And there's all your references in the scriptures about the warnings about physical death. Jesus will never rescind our salvation. But when he's had it with a Christian who will not repent from this state, who just keeps going, keeps rolling as if nothing is happening, the Christian is promised in the scriptures an early death that God will just take you home. 
the precedent. You can see this in Ananias and Sapphira. You can see this in the Corinth church. He says, this is why some of you are sick. Some of you have actually died. And then you have the warnings in Hebrews and in James talking about that if a believer persists in a state like this, unrepentant, unconfessed, not asking for forgiveness, and they continue on and get further and further down, he just takes their life. He just says, come on, it's time to come home. Time to come home. We're done. You're coming home. So physical death is a very real threat, but most Christians don't think that can ever happen to them, but it does. And they know it when it happens. They know when they get sick. They know it's not some random thing. Oh, I got a cold or this and that. No, no, they know it. They know when they get sick that it's a disciplining hand of God. Because if God's going to do it and discipline them with health issues, he's going to make sure they know it. That it's not coming from the fall or just the sin nature or just the fallen world we come in. He's going to know that they're being disciplined for their behavior. And and it's a wake-up call. And a lot of Christians get it. The third one, loss of eternal rewards. This is all through the scriptures. Christ will never take our salvation away like I, I mentioned. But one of the things we can find out is that when we get there with Christ and we're at the Bema seat of Christ, for being in a state like this, any Christian... They'll lose rewards. To whatever degree they live that way will be the degree of rewards taken from them. Just like the guy who buried his talent, Jesus said, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. And so the idea is you go into eternity without being rewarded from the Lord. In fact, you'll get a major tongue lashing from him and assigned a certain place in the kingdom with the hypocrites. This is Laodicea, guys. This is not to make you feel guilty. Again, we're talking about the kind of Christian that kind of got their fire insurance, and that's all they've ever done. They've never grown. They never served. They never evangelized. They're the kind of person that sits in these mega church with 47,000 people sitting there week after week not doing a single thing. That's who we're talking about, okay? So you have to picture that in your mind of why does the Lord get so harsh with them. So again, this all comes with discipline even in this life or in the next. But now let's move on. So now you understand what that means. Now let's go on and now finally explain, Brandon, what is the reason that how they got into this state? What caused them to start checking out as a believer or to never grow? What was it? What is the one thing that did it to them? And it, folks, is the temptation you and I will have in America, okay? We all have to understand this. It's the one thing that all the missionaries on the mission field are praying for about. So you have to understand this one because this is Laodicea, and we're living in the midst of Laodicea in America. So that goes to your outline, number four. Jesus explains the reason for the church becoming lukewarm in verse 17. He explains the reasons for it. Let's look at verse 17. Here's the reason. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That's the reason you got into an altered state of reality and started seeing things from a different perspective rather than the way I see them. You let your wealth distort your reality. You let your affluence mess up your mind. You could have prevented this, but you didn't. Now, historically, what was happening with Laodicea? I can tell you, they were an extremely wealthy church, very affluent. 
And you remember the black wool that they sold and the, the Phrygian ISAV that they sold and the banking industry and they had a spa there. It was money upon money, very affluent. These people in Laodicea faced no persecution. They never worried about where their next meal was coming from. They never worried about anything like that. In fact, they were wondering how they're going to store all their wealth. They worried about their retirement. They worried about all that kind of stuff that you think, wow, you don't see that in the other churches there, especially the the Smyrna church and the other churches. They were facing persecution, living day to day and struggling and suffering. Yeah, it's called affluence. It's called materialism. It's called the love of money. That's what messed them up. And folks, it is the answer to what has happened to the church in America. That's it. You don't need to go anywhere else. Jesus has explained what has happened to our last day's church here. And it's because of American influence, uh, affluence. You must understand that our foundations are Judeo-Christian. Hence, if you work the system as God has laid out, you have a free market system. And that's what happened. America became very prosperous materially. But there's a danger in that, isn't there? The danger is, will I become worldly? Will I start worshiping the wealth and the money that the environment has created? And that is exactly what happened to many, many Christians. They started chasing the dollar. They started chasing wealth. And folks, if you start loving money, loving wealth, materialism, you will lose your mind. Look at everybody who has ever come into money. Look at Hollywood. Look at the athletes. They're crazy. They're not even in, in, in a rational universe anymore. They think there's something special, right? Well, don't think that that can't happen on a local level to a Christian. It can It just doesn't happen in Hollywood and athletics. It happens to Christians, and they get a distorted reality because of money. Well, you're saying, well, Brandon, I don't have any money. I'm poor in the church miles. Okay. But I'm not mean to guilt you, but you must understand the temptation. Compare yourself to the rest of the Christian brothers and sisters around the world. Okay? Do you have hot and cold running water in your house? Do you have an air conditioner and a heater? Do you have one more set of clothes other than one? Do you make more than $2 a day? Because 75% of the world only makes $2 a day. Are you worried about lunch, where you're going to get your meal? Are you wor- about worried about having enough money to get you through the rest of this month? The rest of the world is worrying about where they're going to get money, and they're even contemplating selling their kidneys. on the black market. They're worried about selling organs of how they're going to feed their family. Again, this is not the guilt, but we have to understand where we are living. We won it. We got the lottery ticket. We won. We have the the affluence. There's no Christian in 2,000 years that has ever had the affluence that American Christians have. Ever. Ever. Not just a reference to now, but for the last 2,000 years. The Christians lived in the catacombs during the Roman days. What do you think was going on in Acts? 
Everyone cut them off. They had no money. They were selling all their properties and putting it together so they could survive. You and I are not worried about surviving, are we? We worried about lunch or dinner or next week? How are we going to pay our bills? I'm going to tell you what's going happening. The affluence is making Christians go crazy. And you can see it when you go on a mission field and you look backwards and you hear a guy like Steve Kern saying, man, we're praying for you, Brandon, up there. We understand how great of a temptation it is. Now, if you can understand that and hold the line, great. But guys, look around you. It is affecting people. This is why you and I, we can't figure out why do people have no discernment? Why are people so checked out? Why do people don't care? Because you know why? Life is too comfortable. Francis Schaeffer said it's in the 60s, and he said it's about abortion. And he said it's going to pass. And he goes, you know why? The issue of affluence has put the pacifier in the Christian mouth. And if the Christian in America, this is in the 60s he said this, if the Christian in America can have his affluence, feel comfortable at night, not worrying about where his next meal is coming from, he won't do a thing about abortion. And that lived to be true, didn't it? What does the love of money do? It blinds us to spiritual needs. Jesus said it himself, even about salvation. And I'm talking about another category. I'm not talking about salvation in Laodicea. I'm talking in another category. Because he said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Why did he say that? He was telling us something profound, what money does to people. It makes them feel that they don't have any spiritual needs. If all their physical needs can be met, they won't feel any spiritual need. And hence, why is America, ha- we're having such a hard time reaching these people for the gospel? Because they're too affluent. They've got too much. They don't see their real need. They take care of their needs. I remember a story, this will blow you away, of a rich guy. He's getting on to the gardener. Gardener had put up his price, just another extra five bucks. Five more dollars the gardener was charging. And the guy says, ah, that's too much. That's too much money. I'm not going to pay that. He says, you're fired. You're done. Get out of here. And the gardener came, and God bless this gardener. I don't, he had enough guts to say this to this guy. He says, hey, man, I'm just asking for five more dollars just to stay with a living wage, man. I'm just asking for five more dollars. You're a millionaire. And the gardener goes, what are you going to do with all that money? You're going to take it with you? You're going to die one day, he said. And you're not going to be able to take it with you. You think that would wake up the rich guy? You know what the rich guy said? I'll hire someone to die for me. Get out of here. Thank you. Yeah, that's the mindset. That's what money does to you. It makes you crazy. You can't empathize with other people. You have so much money. Can you empathize with somebody that can't pay their bills? You can't even sympathize with them. You don't know what it is to make ends meet to struggle through things. You don't understand that. So you lose empathy, sympathy. That's why they become the hardest people. Their hearts become hard towards others. Wealthiest people are the least giving, by the way. The least giving. Guess who gives the most? Poor people. Because they can empathize and sympathize. Guess what the biggest contributor to tithes and offerings in the United States is? Of all churches, all denominations, what's the one state that gives the most? The poorest state, Mississippi. Poorest state in the union, they give the most, and yet they have the poorest people. 
because they can empathize and they sympathize that people are hurting because they don't have any money. I've seen people, guys, and you have too, that the money has changed them. They forget where they come from. They forget what they're about. They forget about priorities in their life and they lose it. They start hanging out with a higher socioeconomic crowd. They won't hang out with you and I anymore. You, remember, you see that? They're only hanging out with the elite now. They're in that category, and they look down on you. And you want to say, hey, man, I know where you come from. I went to high school with you. Who do you think you are? You're just an old Delano boy just like me. They forget that, don't they? They think they're better than you. They think they're above that. Where does that come from? It's that money. And then you know what? They think they have a lot of friends. You know who the friends are? Exactly what Solomon said. When you have money, the leeches come out. They're not your friend. They're why for your money. They want your money. Don't think you're a swell guy to be around because when you had no money, no one wanted to be around you. Now you got all the money. Now you have a posse. Now you have an entourage. Now you have the leeches. Yeah, that's what's happening. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's out there. But that is the spiritual danger because what happens is it distorts reality for them. They think, look, I have become rich, I have become wealthy. Indeed, they had. They were very affluent and had need of nothing. Again, what's happening here? Because the distorted reality, they said, I don't need anything. I don't don't have need of nothing. They don't even need Jesus anymore. They have become completely self-sufficient. And that's opposed to faith. We're supposed to be dependent on the Lord and interdependent on each other. But when you have money, you don't depend on the Lord, and nor do you want to be dependent on or interdependent with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. So people remain isolated because they're, I, I don't need anybody. And that's what happened in these large churches with thousands and thousands of people. Those people sit there and go home. They don't know anybody. Come, go, I'm good. I got it all together. I got my retirement. I got my bank account. I'm good. I got this one. Huh. It reminds me of the guy in the scriptures that Jesus said there was a farmer, and he had more grain than he knew what to do with it, remember? And so he says, I know what I'll do. Instead of being generous, he built bigger barns. And he built a bigger barn, put more grain in it. You remember the story. And he says, ha, now life will be easy. And I'm paraphrasing. Sit back. Take it easy. I got my bank accounts. All the barns are built, more storage and all that. I'm good. Eat, drink, and be merry, he said. And what did the Lord say in the parable? You fool. You fool. This very night will require your life. You're not taking it with you. You fool. Hoarding your wealth, not being generous, not helping other folks particularly your brothers and sisters, you have become self-sufficient, haven't you? You don't need me. You don't need others. That's dangerous to be in, folks. This is why we see so many Christians suffering in isolation. They suffer with their own issues, but they never reach out for help because they're self-sufficient. The money will buy it through them, they think. It'll pave the way. That's a scary place to be, guys. Scary place to be. Look what 1 Timothy said, chapter 6. And Paul was saying this and how it affects believers. Because if you think we're immune, we're not. 
He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And contentment is dealing with wealth and money and all that. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we carry nothing out. You're right. I've done many, many funerals. I've never seen a U-Haul in back of a hearse. I've just never seen it. They don't take it with them. They go as they came in. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Did you catch that? That's what Scripture's talking. Having food and clothing, that is enough. Yeah, but what about the 80-inch screen on my TV? You know, go on, Paul. I need that to see the big game. Again, this is not an attack on having things. Please don't misunderstand me. This is not an attack on having nice things. It is if the things have you. If you're worshiping the creation, you can have nice things. But when it creates a distorted reality for you, you're messed up. That's what we're talking about. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So if you're going in life about how to make money, how to make more money, how to be rich, wrong goal, that's not what God wants. The goal in life is I need to do what God has equipped me and given me gifts for so I can maximize my time, talent, and treasure with the Lord's given me, to be a good steward of what he's given me. Not to be a millionaire. That's not the goal. Because how many people have been messed up by it? And he says they, they go into foolish and harmful lusts. Think about the wealthiest men on the planet, guys. Please think about them. Bill Gates, he's crazy. He's a leftist. George Soros is a leftist. Keep going. Oprah Winfrey, she's new age. They're crazy. They've lost it. All these rich people, have, they lose it. They lose it mentally. They can't keep it together. Uh, we passed out our common core thing to, to you guys in your bulletins. Do you know it's Bill Gates who's funding common core? It's crazy. And when you're at that level, you lose your mind. Destruction. For what? For money? Or no, it's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. Look at some. Who are the some? Believers in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Hey, when people tell you, hey, rich people are happy. No, they're not. They're the most depressed people you'll ever see. You just don't hear about it. But why in Hollywood do they have so many suicides? They have all the money they want. Because it doesn't make them happy, truly happy. For a time, maybe. But I remember a story about Deion Sanders. You guys remember Deion Sanders? Real flashy, played for Dallas Cowboys, played for the 49ers. He said that when he won the Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys, that night he was on the phone, and he had just gotten off the phone ordering his new Lamborghini. And when he put the phone down, he still felt empty. So Deion Sanders, he, you know, he had reached the height of football, the pinnacle of football. He's ordering a Lamborghini. Who can order a Lamborghini, man? And he said, I was so empty. And it's at that point he accepted Jesus after that because he says, I couldn't deal with the emptiness inside me. I was too empty. I had everything I could possibly want, a Lamborghini and all the money I could possibly want, the Super Bowl, still empty. Yeah, he's right. But notice what it does. It sucks in some Christians. Some have strayed from the faith. Let me give you an example in the scriptures of someone who strayed from the faith because they love this world. Look what Paul said in his other letter. 
Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Don't forget the name Demas. Demas was a traveling companion with Paul, ministry companion right there. And you know what sucked him away from ministry? The love of money, the love of this world. And Paul puts his name in Scripture. He abandoned me for this world. Your friends, our Christian brothers and sisters out there in the world have abandoned us in this fight for apostasy because they love this world too much. They're not even in the game. They're not even in the fight with you and I in the trenches. They see you and I in the trenches and they totally don't understand what we're doing. You guys are crazy, man. I'm living the good life. I'm worried about where I'm going to go for vacation coming up. Where are we going? You fool. This is very nice. Your life might be required of you. Think about this, guys. World-class Olympians were asked, would you take a drug that would win you the gold medal, but you would die in 10 years? Do you know how they responded? The majority of them said yes. They were willing to take a drug that their life would end in the next 10 years just to win a gold medal. They'd give up 50 years of their life for a gold medal. 50 years of their life, at least. That's crazy. That's a distorted reality. That's someone not in even in reality. Okay, so now Jesus is going to wake him up. He's going to say, I know you're not in reality, but let me tell you, I'm the amen, and I'm the faithful and true witness, and I'm going to tell you like it is. I'm going to give you the real scoop on your life. Here's how you really are and how you appear to me as a believer. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Let's unpack this. You're wretched. He's telling believers you're wretched when you're in this state. That means you're floundering in unhappiness and you're distressed. Like I said, most rich people are miserable. And then he says you're miserable, which means that you're living in spiritual squalor. You're disgusting. You need mercy. And mercy means I withhold something from you that you deserve. You're poor. You might be rich and wealthy, but you're spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing. And by the way, you have no desire to change that lifestyle, do you? You're blind, spiritually blind. You think you see because you have the Phrygian ISAF. But I'm telling you, spiritually, you have no discernment. You can't even tell what's coming or going. You can't discern right or wrong anymore. You can't even discern a cult. You can't even discern anything. You've lost your spiritual eyesight. You don't even see what's going on with you. And you're naked. The idea of naked is referencing the black wool, which they clothe themselves with the black wool, the fine apparel. And he's saying, the emperor has no clothes on. You're spiritually naked. What does that mean? It doesn't mean a lack of salvation. It means a lack of good works. In Revelation 19, he talks about the white linen that's given to believers represents the good works, the righteous acts that we did as saints in this life. We will be rewarded by clothing white clothing. And he says, I'm not going to reward you. You have no clothing that I can give you. You're spiritually naked because you don't do anything for me. Hence, you are useless to me. And because you're useless, you're spiritually naked. You have nothing to cover up yourselves. That's the real estimation of them. So again, they become friends of the world. Let's go to number five then. Now Jesus explains how this church can repent. I counsel you to buy from me Gold, refining the fire, that you may be rich. Let's explain that a little bit. I'm asking you to self-sacrifice. This is the price you're going to pay for me. You're going to have to pay for this. I want you to buy from me through self-sacrifice. This is Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. 
You become a living sacrifice, and then you renew your mind by the transforming of it by the Scriptures. I need you to buy that from me so you can have gold refined in the fire. Gold refined in the fire refers to spiritual riches rather than earthly riches, spiritual riches, that you may be rich. What did Jesus say about treasure? Store up where? Treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy or where thieves do not break in and steal. What are those spiritual treasures? It's obedience found in works, righteousness. Not to earn righteousness, but to serve the Lord as he wants us to so he can reward that. When you serve the Lord, whether it's in evangelism or in ministering to the body of Christ, you will be rewarded for that. And he's saying, though, you need to do that and store up those riches instead of serving yourself. I am not your genie. I do not serve you. You serve me, and you have the whole thing backwards is what he's saying. I'm counseling you to do this. I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to force this on you, but you're going to have to eventually step out and start serving me. You're eventually going to have to start stepping out and evangelizing. You're going to have to start doing that as a normal routine of your life. That's the gold you need to purchase from me. Look at Matthew 6 says this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In essence, what Jesus was saying, if you want to get past this, what you value most in life is where your affections will be. If you value your wealth, you value your life, that's where your affections will be. But if you value me, that's where you'll put your affections because I'm in heaven and that's where we're going. Paul told Timothy this in 1 Timothy, let them do good that they be rich in what? Good works. That's where your gold is found. It's in service to the Lord, rich in good works. What are you doing for the Lord? Here's the question. Here's the application. This is a tough question. What are you doing for Jesus? What are you doing in the realm of evangelism? And what are you doing in the realm of ministering to the body of Christ? Those two fundamental questions, as basic as they are, have to be answered by you and you alone. Are you evangelizing? Are you serving the body of Christ? I hope you are. Because that's the goal that he's talking about. That's where it's at. He, then he goes and he says, let's go back to the scriptures. And he says this, and with white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Again, the white garments have to do with the white linen robes in Revelation 19.8 of the saints. So when you do these acts of service, he rewards you for it. That's how your nakedness is clothed. And then he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, 5 through 9. That if you grow in the Lord, if you mature, you actually get spiritual sight. If you don't grow, you go blind. And you don't get to stay at the level you're at. If you reach a certain level in spiritual discernment and you decide, I'm not growing, and you actually will go backwards, and everything will start closing in on you, and you will lose your spiritual sight. Why do you think so many Christians cannot discern error? Why do you think so many Christians were fooled by this false prophecy of the rapture happening yesterday at Saturday? Why are so many Christians fooled by that? No spiritual sight. They have been blinded by their own Laodicean mindset. That's why. And they attend a church that's Laodicean in essence. But look at, in verse 19, his love for them. In verse 19, he goes, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's a key that he's talking to believers. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I'm coming to you as a parent to a child. Please stop this. This idea of rebuke and chasten has to do with parenting. 
It's parenting terms. Rebuke has to do with train like a child or instruct, and chasten means to discipline with an objective to obedience. He's using parenting language with them. He goes, I love you, and the fact that I love you is proving that I want something better for you. This is Hebrews chapter 12, obviously, but it's a wake-up call, and I'm going to wake you up if I have to, just as a parent has to wake up their own child. And he goes, be zealous, be fanatical about it, have a commitment to do this, and repent. Stop depending on earthly riches. Put away trust in your wealth, your bank account, your retirement. Reevaluate reality that you have created by trusting in the creation. Remember, I'm the creator. When Romans 1 says, when you switch and worship the creation rather than the creator, your mind becomes darkened. Your heart becomes darkened. You lose it. Quit being self-sufficient. Quit being worldly is the idea of repentance. Stop doing this. And lastly, Jesus encourages their repentance with rewards. This is the last point. This passage is typically taken as an evangelistic tone, but it's not. As you can see, the context is dealing with believers who are in this state. In verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm excluded from these believers' lives, is what he's saying. If anyone hears my voice, the word of God, hears it and obeys it, and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, you can apply this into evangelism, but really the primary application is to dealing with believers who are out of fellowship with Messiah. The idea of sitting down and having a meal with somebody in the ancient world meant that I'm fellowshipping with the individual, and we're going to sit and have a meal and talk about what? The weather? Talk about sports? Talk about non-essential things? No, no, no. What Jesus is saying is, I want to sit down with you. I want to fellowship with you. And how we're going to fellowship is that we have commonalities that we can talk about, the things of God. Because I'm not talking to you about the weather. I'm not talking to you about sports. When you and I are fellowshipping, we need to be talking about our relationship. And you've been avoiding it. In fact, I'm not even welcoming your fellowship. I'm outside. I have to knock on the door. And I will not enter your heart, your fellowship, unless you invite me back into it. But right now, you don't want it. That's what he's saying through this. It's an expression of fellowship. But it's one more aspect. Let me add to this. It's an expression of eschatology in times. What do you mean by this, Brandon? It points to the eschatological reality that one day we will sit down physically with Messiah in a meal called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will start the millennial kingdom that way in fellowship with the Lamb as we sit at the table in fellowship with Him and kick off that first day with all the saints of the past. It has an eschatological reality. It's an invitation not only to right now I want fellowship with you, but in the future we're going to be in this state. I need you to get there. I need you to get to that state. And again, this is not dealing with salvation. It's not evangelism. It's fellowship. That's the way you interpret this. It's fellowship. Those I love, I rebuke. And then he says this in verse 21. He gives him a promise. To him who overcomes. This is a believer who overcomes this state, who gets out of it, is not attracted by it, is not tempted by it, or if, if he's in it, he leaves it. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The idea here is this. Jesus is now at the right hand of the father. He shares the father's throne in absolute sovereignty. He is God. 
and he's control of the whole universe. It's a shared kingdom rule is what he's saying. But then Jesus says, I'm going to share my throne with you only, only if you overcome this. So that implies that not all believers will enjoy sharing the throne with Jesus. What is this throne? The throne of Messiah that he's referring to is David's throne. It is a political throne that's going to be in Jerusalem for a thousand years. It is where Jesus will rule and reign this planet for a thousand years when he comes back in the second coming. It is David's throne. It is unoccupied right now, and it sits on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That mountain belongs to God. It belongs to Israel, by the way. But nonetheless, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to share David's throne with you if you overcome this. How so? There's two branches of government in the kingdom age. One branch is the Jewish branch. It's headed up by David, and under him are the 12 apostles. In the Gentile branch in the millennial kingdom is what we call the Gentile branches. There's princes, governors, all kinds of different degrees of ruling. And those believers who have escaped the Laodicean mindset get to rule with Jesus during that time and be over certain territories and certain areas of the planet to help him rule the millennial kingdom over the other Gentiles who come through the tribulation that are believers. So you will share in that throne, he says, if, only if, you get past your materialism, worshiping the creation, worshiping money, I will let you rule with me. But if you don't, you are not going to rule. So not everybody rules. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This, in the book of Revelation, is his last words to the church. It's it. I'm not saying any more to the church. I've said my messages through the church. This is the last stage of Laodicea. Last call. Last call to my church. Get this one right or you're going to lose rewards. I will vomit you out of my mouth if you continue in this. Last call. Last call. And after this, folks, we don't deal with the church any longer in the book of Revelation. We will deal with Israel solely. We won't see the church until Revelation 19 when she's in heaven. So at this point, this is the end for the church, which obviously shows you there's something else that's going to go on. The church is removed through the rapture, and then God starts the plan with Israel in a chronological sequence. But here's the deal. It is the last call to you and I. It is. It's the last word to us before the rapture. He who has near, let him hear. Don't get caught up in this. Don't get caught up in the affluence, the wealth. Don't let it distract you. Don't start chasing the dollar. Don't worry about your career. And that means, doesn't mean that don't provide for your family, but quit chasing the money. It is distorting your reality. It is messing your mind up. And you can't even think straight, church. Again, this is to the broader area, not just us, okay? Let me give you an illustration. We'll end on this. You ever seen Borden's condensed milk in the stores? You can still see it in the stores today. Borden's condensed milk. You may not have known this guy, but his name was Bill Borden. It was in, like in the late 1800s. But his family, obviously very wealthy at the time, in the late 1800s, they sold Borden's condensed milk back then, and they had a lot of real estate, big money. Bill Borden was worth about 40 to $50 million in our time. This is in the late 1800s, okay? And he was raised in this family, and it was non-Christian, by the way, but I want to tell you his story of how he escaped Laodicea because he could have went into the Laodicean mode because he had so much wealth. 
It was easy for him to just go into that mode, but he didn't. I'll show you a story. He grew up in Chicago in the late 1800s. Again, from day one, the kid's a millionaire. He's, again, worth 40 to $50 million in the late 1800s. Yikes. When he was just seven years old, his mom just kind of said, you know what, I need to take him to church. I need to go to church, she said. We just need to go. So his mom started taking him to church. And guess what church he went to? Moody's Church. She took him, can you believe it, to D.L. Moody's Church in Chicago, the famous Moody Church. And this was in the late 1800s. And he sat under D.L. Moody and listened to him. And he, as a little boy, went to Sunday school and all this other stuff. And uh, so he had the best, really. He had the best in his home, materially, best education possible. But then he also, on this side, had the best spirituality with, under D.L. Moody. And he, he listened and he grew. He hadn't accepted the Lord, but he, then he went to high school, did great, excelled academically, athletically, and as a reward, because they had a lot of money, his father said, I'm going to give you a trip around the world, son. Back then, that's big money, man. So he's going to send him after his senior year around the world. And so they put him on a boat, and uh, the first stop, they were going to go into Japan, then Asia, and then Europe. So the first stop you know, Japan. So they sailed across the Pacific, and along the Pacific on the boat was missionaries on that boat that were heading to Asia. Anyway, he got to talking to these missionaries. And again, he's 17, 18 years old, young guy. And boy, he just he heard what they were saying, and, and he says, wow. He just saw things in a new light. These people had given up their lives, given up their fortunes to go to the mission field to share the gospel. It just blew him away. Well, anyway, he went to Japan, went to Asia, and then he ended up in Europe, again, part of this vacation his family sent him on. And he ended up in England. <laughs> Check this out. Not only did he have the best preaching in America, he came into some of the best preaching in England. He came under R.A. Torrey, and he was at R.A. Torrey's church where he got saved. And it's just amazing how, how that happened. And, and they sang the hymn, I Surrender All, when he got saved, and that got him. And he accepted the Lord under R.A. Torrey. Again, very wealthy. Comes back to the United States. His parents send him to Yale. Again, he's, he's loaded. But he's convicted over missions. And so at Yale, he puts his own money and creates a rescue mission in New Haven. And in his free time at Yale, he's out witnessing to these people, taking care of them and, and leading a lot of people to the Lord. And they said at Yale, no one knew he was a millionaire. They had no idea. They just, they didn't know about his money, but they definitely knew he was a Christian. That was the one thing that stood out. They knew he was a Christian. They had no idea about his money, by the way. Multi-millionaire. Well, anyway, he started that in New Haven and then eventually went to Princeton for seminary, graduated in 1912. And so after that, his parents thinking, hey, you're going to come run the business and you're going to be a millionaire just like us and, uh, and you're going to be the head of this company. And he said no. And his parents were shocked. What do you mean no? What are you going to do? We have this condensed milk that you still buy the shelves today. Uh, everything's set up for you. You're supposed to run the company. He goes, I'm not doing it. God has called me to something higher. I'm going on the mission field. I don't want to live the Laodicean lifestyle that you guys are living. I want to get away from it. And I see the gold and the spiritual riches of mission work. And he was just on fire for missions. Well, anyway, this shocked him. But he set out 
And apparently, when he wanted to go to Asia, he was thinking more of the Middle East. Because then he, in December 17, 1912, he went to Cairo. And he was in Cairo to learn the language, Arabic language, to share the gospel. And this is early 1900s in the Middle East to the Muslim population. Well, think about this. He's only 25 when he goes to Cairo. And he's learning the language. And this is what happens. He develops meningitis and he dies. He just dies from meningitis. He's only 25 years old. They found after his death in his will, he had left millions of dollars to missions. He had already planned that. that Upon his death, he's going to give all his money to missions and stuff like that, at least his inheritance. Amazing. But here's what I want to point out to you about Bill Borden. So when you see Borden's condensed milk in the store, I want you to remember this story. He got away from that Laodicean mindset. And when they found his body... Under his pillow, they found a little note he had wrote. Maybe he suspected he was going to die. I don't know. But he wrote on this note, and remember these words, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve. He had spent all of his money trying to get there, willed it away. No retreat. Couldn't come back. Had given up the family fortune. No regrets. Wow, that 25-year-old gave up everything for the kingdom. He left all his worldly riches behind. Think about that, 40 to $50 million. And he said, no regrets. I pray during this time period that we're in, this Laodicean time period, with the temptation of money in front of us, the affluence and the wealth, the materialism, that we remember his words and that Jesus says, it's the last call. I hope you leave this life when I come get you with no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.